You ever watch this guy on television? You all were not telling the truth, and you should not be trusted. Congressman Matt Gates, thank you for what you yeah. did for your country tonight. Be offended with the Democratic whip, not House Republicans. Like a machine, Matt Gates. Welcome to Hot Takes. This is Congressman Matt Gates. Let's talk about the news. And the news is positive when it comes to the American economy and job numbers. The numbers came in, and one of the folks that was reading the numbers said, wow, this is a great number. It's only three million job losses. And then reading it and say, you know, I don't think this, I'm not reading this right. Let me look at it again. Oh, wait a minute. This is three million gain almost. Three million jobs gained. And then they shouted out, one of them sort of semi-shouted out, is this a typo? I think it was probably the greatest miscalculation in the history of business shows, the history of business shows talking about Wall Street. And that's okay. But one of the reasons we're in this position is because we had such a strong foundation. So we were able to close our country, save millions of lives, open, and now the trajectory is great. CNBC's Fred Imbert has a great headline. It reads, Dow rallies more than 700 points after shocking surge in U.S. jobs. So the expectation, the prognostication from economists is that in May we would lose 8 million jobs and have a 20% unemployment rate. But the reality is that the U.S. economy added 2.5 million jobs and now has a 13.3% unemployment rate. We've seen uh, the increases in valuation and economic activity, particularly benefiting a lot of the industries that suffered the gravest consequences during coronavirus. Uh, airline stocks, cruises, MGM, assignment properties, which manages a lot of mall properties, financial services. You know, a lot of banks had seen their margins really go down to nothing as they were administering a lot of the facilities from the Fed. Now that we've seen uh, some of that money get out, those businesses stay alive and engage in their regular commerce. Uh, Wells Fargo, uh, Citibank, a number of the other major financial institutions doing better. So great to see the American economy exceeding expectations. This economy is driven and fueled by confidence and production, and it looks like we'll be right back on track to restore American greatness. Defund the police. That's right. This is the new rallying cry of the political left in our country. Not a desire to improve police, not a desire to have better training, better funding, body cameras, but defund the police. Hand our society back over to the thugs and criminals. Uh, you know, I, I saw in Minneapolis where the son of Keith Ellison, who's the attorney general there, uh, is a city councilman and said that they're simply going to dismantle the Minneapolis Police Department. Just take it apart. And I'm thinking to myself, while that may make you feel good at a at a rally that may fire up the far left edges of the political base, it's not good for people who you know require uh, protection and who require our laws to say stay safe and and stay prosperous and to stay free. You know, I think of police officers uh, as, you know, folks who, just like the rest of us, have good days and bad days, just like there's good congressmen and bad congressmen and good doctors and lawyers and bad doctors and lawyers. There are good police and bad police. And I know for a fact that that a vast, vast majority of the people who go put on that uniform do it because they take pride in being part of that thin blue line 
between people who want to abide by our laws and those who would create danger as a result of their unwillingness to do so. Uh, but defund the police, I guess that's the sequel to defund Border Patrol and ICE. I, I couldn't believe it as a sitting member of Congress when my colleagues in an institution that is supposed to stand for our people actually was I had colleagues filing legislation to get rid of Border Patrol, get rid of ICE, get rid of the whole Department of Homeland Security and leave our nation vulnerable. I opposed those things, but now they're even scaling that opposition to protection and to our people uh, down to the street level wanting to defund the police. Uh, here's how we know it. I'm going to break it down. I'm going to break down where the money comes from, what's animating the movement, and where I think it's likely to go, and, and really where we're already starting to see some effects that are going to put uh, people in danger. So Brian Fallon is the executive director of an entity called Demand Justice. And Brian Fallon tweets out, quite simply, defund the police. And so I start to think to myself, like, who is this guy? What is this demand justice organization? And what role does it have in, in the Democratic Party? And there is a, there is a, a great piece in influencewatch.org. I'll post it up on, on our uh, Twitter page when we get the podcast posted. And demandjustice.org is, is characterized by Influence Watch as a liberal dark money organization. And they brag that they've been given $2.5 million by George Soros. Now, George Soros is typically like a political windsock for where the left is going to go because he throws in the money and then the politicians and policymakers and aspiring politicians and a lot of these outside shadowy dark money groups then gravitate to that Soros message. And that's how they're trying to reshape our society, not as a society built on capitalism and freedom, but one where the government essentially controls us and, and we have anarchy and chaos. That is, that is ultimately the, um, the goal of, of the radical left. And so Soros gives $2.5 million to this entity and they come out saying defund the police. I think every Democrat in the Congress, every Democrat candidate for office should be required to be on record. Like, do you support the defunding of our police or do you stand with the people who work so hard to keep our communities safe? Do you stand with their family members who have to make sacrifices when the people they love are out on patrol so that uh, we can live lives free and that we can look to our, our highest ambitions without being worried uh, moment after moment for our, for our physical security? And, and this mentality that all the police are at fault seems to be creating some really negative policy consequences. There's a piece in the Associated Press reporting out of Portland that the largest school district in Portland has now abolished the program that keeps uniformed law enforcement in our schools. I, I just can't even believe this. Like in Portland now, apparently they're so woke that they think that police protecting our students uh, is part of the problem. I've seen no circumstances where the police who are there working with young people in our schools have been uniquely uh, challenged by some of these dynamics that we see uh, out on the streets and, and with communities that have had some, uh, I think, you know, appropriate longstanding grievances about the interactions that that police have. And I just don't understand why 
we wouldn't seize the opportunity to build stronger relationships between young people and police. In the state of Florida, we went exactly the opposite direction. When we were challenged by the school shooting in Parkland, when we saw the pain that that brought to family members and to teachers and to students, it was our position that we needed more school resources officers, not fewer. Actually, we came together, Republicans and Democrats in the state legislature, and we funded more training, more body cameras. Uh, we want that 12, 13, 14-year-old at school to look at that police officer, not as someone that would want to do them harm, but as someone who will protect them and encourage them. And, and perhaps even most importantly at this moment, understand the experiences of young people at at a basic level, at that day in, day out, do the homework, go to the extracurricular activities, you know, resolve conflicts peacefully and without violence and physical altercation. These are all things that we can build on with strong school resource officer programs. But when you got the largest school district in Portland abolishing these police program in our schools, what it does is it it's a step back. It says these people are the problem. And, and what message does that send to the students? You know, the students who were interacting with these law enforcement officers that now don't get to have essentially been told by their own government that law enforcement is the problem. Do you think that's going to make things easier? Do you think that's going to create less conflict on the street? Uh, I certainly don't. And so this is, this is very short-sighted. And it's not just me as a conservative Republican saying it's short-sighted. Uh, my good friend, former state representative from Parkland, Florida, Jared Moskowitz, tweeted out that this was short-sighted and wrong and that the people of Portland should talk to the people of Parkland to figure out how improving the training and improving the interactions with law enforcement can be a great force for good in our communities. So, you know, I think we need to move away from demonizing law enforcement and criticizing those who serve our communities. Obviously, we need to see justice in the Floyd case. And I think that we're well on a way to achieving that based on uh, the arrests that we've seen and the fact that these folks aren't aren't on the force and, and out on the beat following this uh, this terrible and tragic uh, killing of George Floyd. But if we if we do create the right policy framework, I'm hopeful that that we can come together as Republicans and Democrats. I mean, again, I support enhanced training and body cameras. And I think that community policing review boards can give communities better confidence that the police that are walking the streets in their neighborhoods are responsive and responsible and accountable for the decisions and for the force that they deploy. Uh, I also think that we could do a lot more in this country to have good geographic recruitment. I've long believed that when police officers come from the communities that they are serving, that there is a life experience and a context and an understanding that really improves the quality of that policing and improves the the reception of that policing within the community. If if they see faces that are familiar, if they know that the life experiences that people have had wearing the badge match the life experiences of those uh, who are who are working that live the great American experience. And so I, I think we can do a lot more to resource geographic-based recruitment in areas where we need to grow the next generation of responsive and responsible and accountable law enforcement officials. Now, is that the way we're headed in the Congress? Of course not. Uh, the news is that in the coming week, the House Judiciary Committee will be holding hearings 
on policing and on the interactions between police and communities, and that we may, in fact, be looking at this Floyd case to open our eyes into potential improvements. And what I'm so disappointed by is that we really should have done this before. In fact, the House Judiciary Committee did have a hearing on community policing. And what I'm so offended by is that the Democrats used it as a way to inflame racial tension rather than uh, than to try to calm it and to try to bring us together. Who would be the worst person in the world you could think of uh, to come and provide testimony at a community policing hearing? Well, I think it would be pretty freaking awful to invite someone who has called cops pigs, who has suggested that white people be murdered, who has been anti-Semitic in their comments about uh, Jewish merchants in, in communities, particularly communities of color. But that's exactly what the Democrats did. That's right. Last year, Democrats brought in Al Sharpton, the racist, the race baiter, Al Sharpton, someone who essentially is a professional racist for a living. And I was so pissed off by that because I think about the law enforcement officials in my community of, of every race, of every background, of every creed, who work so hard to keep my district safe, who take such pride in the work that they do. And it is offensive to the people who wear the badge to trot out a racist like Al Sharpton as some sort of authority on community policing or policing at all. And that's the point I made when I questioned Al Sharpton. Here's some of that testimony. Whereas the Reverend Al Sharpton has referred to members of the Jewish faith as blood-sucking Jews and Jew bastards. So my question to you is, does Mr. Scarborough's assertion that you said these things, is that true or did you not say those things? They are patently untrue. Whereas the Reverend Al Sharpton led a protest in the Crown Heights neighborhood and marched next to a protester with a sign that read, the white man is the devil. Did you march next to a sign that said- I have no recollection of that. Have you ever referred to African-Americans who disagree with you as yellow and then the N-word? I don't know that I've, I've referred to people as, as names. I don't know if it's because I, they disagree with me. Have you ever uh, referred to African-Americans who disagree with you as Negro militants? I didn't know that was a derogatory statement. Have you said, I'm in hell already, I'm in Israel? Yeah. You referred to people as Greek homos, didn't you? I do not recall. Have you? Have you, you made can, you Will can the ask, gentleman yield? You can ask all the questions the you yield? want, but I'm going to answer the question. Will the gentleman yield? When you call Greek homos, when you talk about white crackers, those are bigoted no, statements. And so next week, as we head back to Washington to work together to try to improve these circumstances, it's my hope that House Democrats won't try to inflame the situation by giving a platform to racists, but that they'll instead work with us for the types of solutions that can result in better policing, stronger communities, more safety, and confidence among the American people that we will get through this and we will be stronger as a nation as a consequence. Twitter's double standards just continue to amaze me. They had I guess, limited the reach of one of my tweets because I said that we ought to identify Antifa and hunt them down the way that we do terrorists in the Middle East since, you know, they are terrorists. They are burning things in our communities. The latest uh, Twitter, uh, I guess, indication of that double standard is their unwillingness to give the same treatment to tweets that actually do glorify violence. So they say when I indicate that we should hunt down Antifa terrorists, that that 
glorifies violence, but there is reporting from Daniel Payne's justthenews.com that I think really effectively chronicles the bias on social media and the double standards faced by conservatives. And what I think was particularly important about Payne's reporting is that he went through circumstances where people had glorified violence and Twitter allowed their content to spread and proliferate around the country. There's a verified account, Rachel Hillsop. She tweets, clearly, rioting works. Clearly, burning things works. And she goes on to describe her anger. But I mean, when you're glorifying violence and burning things, apparently Twitter has no problem with that. There was also an article from a writer with The Root, Michael Harriet. Uh, the article is entitled, All Times When Rioting and Violence Worked. So, I mean, it, there is clearly not an opposition to violence on the part of Twitter. It is opposition to a conservative viewpoint that we ought to suppress the violence, that we ought to use not vigilantism, but we ought to use the tools of our government, as President Trump has effectively done, to ensure that our nation can be safe and our people can be free. A Slate.com, a verified Twitter account, an account that's got 1.7 million followers, tweets the following. On uh, 6 4 20 at 12.35 a.m., they say nonviolence is an important tool for protests, but so is violence. So literally, Slate.com, this is pinned to the top of my Twitter profile, at Matt Gates, says that violence is an important tool. So Twitter doesn't think that glorifying violence glorifies violence, but they think that me uh, tweeting about the need to go after people who would burn our buildings and terrorize our people is somehow improper for their platform. And in the latest Antifa Violence Watch, uh, we see some reporting from the Daily Caller's Andrew Kerr that in Richmond, the federal courthouse was actually marked for potential ar arson. This is a courthouse where I'm sure people work who both agree and disagree with various elements of politics and our, our national uh, discussion today, but they certainly don't deserve to be the victims of arson. We thank the good folks at the Richmond Police Department. They arrested seven people who had fire accelerants and were apparently quite eager to do harm uh, to our fellow citizens. Uh, Politico's Betsy Woodruff-Swan also has a report on the DOJ crackdown on a lot of this violence. Uh, and I'm glad that Attorney General Barr is engaged in this crackdown. Attorney General Bill Barr has my full support in his effort to identify, target, trace, defund, and then ultimately arrest the people that would uh, smash our cars, that would destroy our shops, and that would do so in a desire to terrorize Americans. Uh, 51 arrests have been made by the Department of Justice with a nexus to violent crime. And frankly, I think there need to be a lot more arrests and there needs to be a lot more enforcement. One thing I found uh, particularly interesting is that Apple has had a unique way to track and trace those who have uh, victimized them by stealing their products and, and perpetrating uh, their partner retail establishment. So a lot of people have stolen iPhones uh, for some reason during this during this rioting season. And, you know, I, I, I just have to reflect that, you know, going and smashing a window and stealing an iPhone is not political speech. But what has Apple done in response to the stealing of iPhones? They've actually activated the iPhones 
and then tra traced them and tracked them and then sent messages to the people saying like, hey, we know who you are. We know where you are. Like bring back the freaking iPhone. So maybe be careful before you steal technology. It may tell more about you uh, than you want it to. And I certainly hope that uh, those who have created this chaos face the full consequences of our law enforcement. And I'm glad that Attorney General Barr is taking action to remove violent people from our streets, hunt down Antifa terrorists, and it sure would be nice if social media platforms like Twitter would apply the same standard to Slate.com regarding glorifying violence uh, that they seem to want to misapply to Republican members of Congress like me that they don't agree with. It's time for Fun and Sun at Universal Orlando. That's right, uh, Universal Studios Orlando here in my beloved Florida. I think the first major theme park to reopen after coronavirus. And there is a great review by Richard Kerr uh, at thepointsguy.com. That's thepointsguy.com. Richard Kerr's got a piece having gone to Universal Orlando and sort of reflected on the experience of a theme park in this era of coronavirus. And I want to start by saying I think that my governor, Ron DeSantis, has really looked at this data, not just in, in terms of number of people uh, infected, but in terms of the actual science of sunlight and moisture, humidity rates, and how that impacts the spread and transfer of coronavirus. And in Florida, while we are unique in that we invite a lot of international visitors to our state. We've got a lot of people who travel here from other parts of the country, particularly the American Northeast. We have not seen the same rate of intubation and community spread as in other places. And I really think our, our governor has drilled down into uh, some of the scientific reasons why. So Universal Orlando opens and of course, when you're doing something new and different, when you're utilizing a facility, whether it's a workspace or a theme park or a school, differently than you had contemplated as a result of the need for social distance, there are going to be a few bumps in the road. There's going to be a few points of transition that you've got to work through. But I was encouraged to see that there's a, a real combination of signage and employee guidance and hand sanitizing stations and social distancing at a lot of the rides and entry points at Universal Orlando. You're seeing uh, temperature checks. And, and of course, there are still instances where, where there are people getting bunched up at various choke points. We've got to work through that because, you know, if you're able to social distance a great deal of time, but then everybody gets bunched up for a temp check or uh, on an escalator or elevator, you've still got to work through that. Uh, I thought it was interesting that those three and older were required to wear a mask. And from the reporting that we saw from Richard Kerr, it seems as though there was really strong compliance with this mask policy that, that people, you know, saw the value in, in being each other's uh, keepers and in keeping one another safe. And so that's good to hear. And and then, of course, there's the concept of virtual lines. And while that'll have some kinks that have to get worked out, the notion that to wait for something, you all don't have to be in the same space, that our smartphones can allow us to virtually line up and then be called into uh, into whatever opportunity may present itself, whether it's a ride or a, a medical appointment or a DMV appointment uh, for you know a driver's license, any of those things, I think we're going to start to see this type of tech needed uh, even more. And, and while, of course, 
there's initial confusion as we deploy these solution sets. I'm sure glad to see Universal Orlando back up and running. I wish everybody a safe, fun time, and I'm hopeful that all of the attractions in Florida will be able to use this tech, will be able to leverage the desire of people participating to be compliant, and that we will get to some sense of normal as soon as possible. Have a great weekend, everyone. We'll be back next week with more hot takes.